Hey, um, hey, Lynn. We're back. Yeah. Lynn, Lynn, excuse me. We got a question right off the bat. Yep. Uh, do you know whose birthday it is, is tonight? It? I. Oh, wow. Wow, if you okay. never if so, you never knew what So that's that's actually one of the few inappropriate questions. Uh, <laughs> well and we we know how much you love cheesecake, so we got you a brownie cake. Oh uh, there for your you birthday go. Here. Get, uh, no, actually the baker told us it was it was 155 degrees. They said yeah. you're not doing cheesecake. There so you go. We hope you like brownie cake here. Okay. Um, and you know, out of respect for your confidentiality, we're not gonna tell anybody it's your fifty one 51st okay. birthday. We got only three candles on here, that's so nobody gracious. will know. Yeah. Okay. One for each so decade. That's yeah. it. Exactly. So what we're going to do here, I'll go ahead and, and light these, and we'll sing happy birthday. Hopefully these will go quickly. They're getting there. Dan's going to lead us in. Yes. Happy birthday. Dan, I hope so. Can... If I remember how to play it. You remember that song. We can sing it. Happy birthday to you. Okay, Lynn. You, you are a Make bad, your... bad man. Isn't there Make a your... song about that? You're a bad, bad man. There is. Yeah. There is. I okay. resemble that. Make yeah. your wish and blow those candles out. Uh, my, okay. <laughs> All right. Very, very good. Excellent. Okay. What? Yeah. Oh, well, no. Wait a minute. Come on, Lynn. I was. I You're was barely out of your forties. There was only so I... three candles. Yeah, exactly. You, you well, all, we might as well wait for okay. all of them to yeah, come back on again. The other yeah. one's probably coming back too. Right? Might as well. Okay. Yeah. Hey, listen. This was not my idea. Yeah. These candles. All these people. They begged me to do this. Yeah, you did. Actually. Huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I will take care of these for you. But thank you very much. Hey, listen. On behalf of your entire family here. Yeah. <laughs> we just want to say. Um, Happy birthday. God bless you. We Thank love you. you. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I've, I've never been more humiliated. No, I mean, uh, more appreciated. That's great. Thank you. Hey, uh, just real quick before you start, I want to encourage you, and I, I really mean this when I say it. This, this isn't pastor talk uh, right now. I want to encourage you to pray for the current series uh, that we're in uh, talking about marriage. We are, we're just getting the beginning senses of God doing some healing, God uh, maybe giving some second chances in some relationships that are going on, and then just some good healthy stuff too, where good marriages are saying, hey, we tried some of that and it actually worked a little bit, but um, when God is moving, I think you and I have got to join in that. So I just want to encourage us that we would bathe this thing in prayer, that we would just say, God, please, please, please do what only you can do. Uh, in changing lives with uh, this series and this conversation that we're having. So, I'm, I'm please, I mean, when you're sitting in here on Sunday and while the con- pray about it, when you're walking in the doors, when you're at work and you think about it, just drop a little bit and say, God, please do your work. We're just having a blast being a part of you doing your work on the deal. Tell you what, we're going to dive into Ephesians. I'm going to ask you a couple questions, let you guys help me figure out what we're going to talk about tonight. But before we do that, let's pray real quickly, and, uh, and then I, I want to ask you what we want to cover together tonight on this. So let's pray, and then uh, I'll ask. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, I just simply come before you tonight 
asking you to be in this room with us. Would you guide my words? Would you help me to teach those things which are accurate and truthful and right on with uh, what Scripture says? And uh, would you guide our conversations uh, tonight? And God, in those moments when it gets uh, a little rocky or bumpy and things are not maybe what I always thought uh, the Bible said, give us uh, just a ravenous spirit to go back and to study for ourselves uh, to find out what your word truly says uh, on each of these topics. God, would you be with us? Would you honor these that have come out tonight with knowing more Scripture, but better than that, being able to live more Scripture? In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Ephesians. I think we're getting about, almost to verse 4. Isn't that about where we got to? Because we were cruising last week. It was amazing. I didn't get distracted at all. So, uh, Here's the deal. Uh, Verse 4 and verse 5 are some of the more controversial verses in Scripture. Matter of fact, they're verses that have been argued about for years and years and years. Matter of fact, hundreds of years uh, within Christianity. Let me read them for you real quickly, and you'll get a little bit of a sense. Uh, Verse 4 says this, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And what Christians have argued about for several hundred, multiple hundred years is, what does that mean? What does it mean that you and I were chosen? And what does it mean that you and I were predestined in Christ? And there's one camp of belief that basically says, well, what that means is, is that God chose who was going to be a Christian and who wasn't. And there's another camp that says, no, 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 that's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about something different. But Christians have argued back and forth over the meaning of being chosen and predestined for hundreds of years. The group that would say, hey, this means that God chooses some for salvation would be uh, in a group called Calvinist, uh, and that's the Calvinist view of what's happening in these verses. And then there are others who would say, no, we, we won't go there. We don't accept that. We have a differing view from that in Scripture. So here's the million-dollar question. Uh, because these verses are controversial, because they're ones that get argued about all the time, do we want to take and spend some time undigging, digging through that and unpacking that a little bit, talking about this topic of Calvinism and what does the Bible say about that topic? Or would we rather say, no, you know what, let's just kind of move through them and keep going steady on with the book of Ephesians? So here's the question. How many say, I think we ought to maybe unpack the whole Calvinism talk for a little while tonight. I'd be interested in us doing that. How many say, please do not do that. I'm happy not knowing. Um, All right. (laughs) That's an honest answer. Uh, How how many say I'd prefer we could do the just go straight through Ephesians part? Okay, all right, so you're stuck. All right, here we go. All right, so we're going to go back and we're going to talk tonight a little bit about the Calvinism uh, side of things. So here we go. Uh, Let's go back. Let me read those verses for you once again, and then we're going to unpack this together. Let's go back to verse 4. Here's what it says. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. And even though the capitalization's not happening there, we're pretty sure that saying he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so there's a school of thought that says, this is pretty obvious. This is pretty simple. This is saying that people who have become Christians become Christians because God chose them to be Christians. Which by inference would then say that people who don't become Christians don't become Christ followers because they were not chosen. They were not predestined to become believers. Okay? And this is actually some of the stronger passages, uh, some of the passages that are argued about uh, within the conversation. So here's some things, here's some ground rules as we begin to have this conversation. First off, what you need to know is, is that when you get to uh, an issue like this, you cannot take just one passage by itself. If you do that, you will end up proof texting. And, and, and you guys have all sat in a church and you've all heard about pastors who grabbed one verse out of the Bible and made it mean what they wanted it to mean. And it probably had nothing even close to what the Bible was really, really saying. That's called proof texting. And what you and I have to do when we get to places, especially places that are a little bit controversial, or when there's multiple verses in Scripture that talk about the same topic, is you and I have to do a thing called inductive Bible study. This is going to serve you all over the place. And so the reality is even having the topic and talking tonight, just the method in which we're going to use to unpack it a little bit is going to help you with other times when you're in uh, places where you go, hey, wait a minute. I, don't some believers believe this and don't other believers believe something completely different? The best way to tackle those controversial issues is inductive Bible study, which simply means this. You take all the passages that seem to be for and all the passages that seem to be against and you put them all together, all on the table at the same time. Now, you and I won't have the time tonight to do that, but we'll, we'll at least take a shot at that. And here's what you find is, is that as you do that, if, if you're talking about a topic and you find three verses that seem to say something. Let's say, for instance, uh, some Christians believe that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. You guys know that? Okay. All right. Um, how many in here? No, we won't ask that. But, okay, some Christians believe that. And what you need to know is there's actually a couple passages in Scripture that says, um, be uh, believe and be baptized for salvation. And so it's not that there's not a passage or two that seems to imply that in Scripture. But here's what you find when you do inductive Bible study. Yeah, there's one or two passages that seem to say that. But when you begin to study salvation and baptism, you realize that there are literally scores of verses that clearly state that you do not need to be baptized in order to go to heaven. And then the second thing you consider is this. When I get to passages that are specific about the topic, in other words, passages that are directly dealing with the issue at hand, what do those passages say? The ones that were really trying to explain salvation, how did they say salvation happened? And what you find is, is that all the passages that talk about how salvation works land on the side of that topic that say, you do not need to be baptized in order to be a Christian. Okay? And your best bet then is to say, there's so much evidence on this side that I need to go back and figure out how those verses fit in. But I know my answer because there's so much on this side. Does that make sense? 
Yes? Nod your head so that I can feel better, even though you don't understand. Okay. All right. It's inductive Bible study. Because here's the deal, guys. You get that there are topics in the Bible that have been argued about for hundreds of years. And this is why they're argued about it, is because there's still people pointing to the three. And so they continue to argue. When if they would actually do good inductive Bible study, they wouldn't have to argue about the three because there's 90 that tell them differently. Does that make sense? Not again gently. Okay, all right. So we're going to do a little bit of inductive Bible study uh, tonight on this topic. All right. Um, here we go. People who would teach Calvinism or go that direction... Again, in this verse would say, hey, it's really, really obvious. Verse 4 says that you and I were chosen in Him, and which means you didn't choose God. God chose you, and we were predestined. So even before we were ever born, God decided that you were destined to be a Christian. And a matter of fact, this uh, teaching can get summed up. There's actually five points to it, to it. The first one is total depravity, and this is Calvinism. Total depravity, which simply means this. You were completely dead in your sins. Which, there's a verse that says that, right? You were dead in your trespass and sin. And a Calvinist would say simply this. If a dead man can't do anything. A dead man can't hear. A dead man can't talk. A dead man can't decide. A dead man can't move. And if you were dead in your sins and trespasses, then you could not possibly do anything spiritual. And so what they would teach is, is simply this, that even if God were standing next to you and yelling, because you're dead in your sin and trespasses, you couldn't hear him because dead men can't hear. Total depravity. Okay? So total meaning all the way. And depravity meaning in sin, completely fallen away from God, completely dead in sin. Total depravity. The second point, unconditional election. And what you need to know is there's actually multiple uh, verses in the Bible that say you and I are elect in Christ. And so what, they, what Calvinism says is this, that... God chose unconditionally. In other words, it wasn't because you were blonde. It wasn't because you were tall. It wasn't because you were short. It wasn't because you were good looking. It wasn't because you were rich or poor. Unconditionally, God chose. He elected some to be saved. But that election is random. It has nothing to do with any merit on our part. It has nothing to do with anything that you and I have ever done or will do. It's an unconditional choosing of some to be saved. You got that one? Okay. Limited atonement. Which means this. When Jesus died on the cross, he only died for the ones that would become Christians. Because the argument goes, if he had actually shed his blood for everyone, then everyone would be saved. But he only shed his blood for the ones that he elected, the ones that he predestined and chose. So the atonement, the sacrifice on the cross, is limited to those he knew would become Christians. He did not die for the ones that he knew would not become Christians. 
Because if he had, if he'd paid the price, then their price would have been paid and they would have gone to heaven. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. Now here's the thing too, because some of you are hearing this for the first time. You need to know that lots and lots and lots of Christians would, uh, would ascribe to the five points of Calvinism. Matter of fact, there's lots of churches around in our community that would teach the five points of Calvinism. Okay? Uh, irresistible grace. That simply means this. Because you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, you could not possibly have chosen God. God instead chose you. Okay? And when he finally decided to save you, that moment was irresistible. In other words, he came, he saved you, and you could not have decided not to get saved. It was irresistible in your life. Matter of fact, uh, Calvinist as describing that moment would say this, what you don't realize is, is that you actually became saved because, remember, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, He actually made you alive. In other words, he brought salvation into you. And then you said to yourself, I think I should be saved. But the reality is you had already been saved and already been made alive in order for you to have that thought in the first place. Okay? So irresistible grace. If God decided you were going to be a Christian, you could not choose differently. It was decided. It was a sovereign choice by God on your behalf. And then uh, the last one is called perseverance, perseverance of the saints. And all that says is simply this, since you had nothing to do with getting saved in the first place. In other words, you were dead, God chose you, God actually made you alive, and then you believed after he made you a Christian. Since you had nothing to do with being saved in the first place, you can't possibly do anything to lose your salvation. Because it was never your choice to begin with. So you, once you're a Christian, you will always be a Christian because God chose you to be a Christian and you can't unchoose the things that God has chosen because he's sovereign. Okay? Fairly, okay, so there we are. Anybody here want to say any comments and, and be sure that I've said that accurately? Yes? Maybe you could just add on to, we can't lose our salvation once we pe- became Christian. Once we ask Jesus in our hearts, Romans 10, 9, to ask Jesus in our hearts to save us for our sins, and then we're saved, once saved, always saved, you can't lose your salvation no matter what. Right. Because God will not pluck you out of And I, I agree with you. Uh, Calvinists would also agree with you. Do the Calvinists say anything about free will? Because so you, that we got to be real careful. I say it too much in third person because there's probably a lot of Christians in the room that have a Calvinist view. But uh, yes. Does right. this include free will at all? Yes, here's, here's kind of, and that's a great question, does this include free will at all? Here would be most Calvinist perception. They would say, you live your entire life with free will, making all sorts of choices. Some of those choices are good, some of those choices are bad. But when it comes to the moment of salvation, in that moment, God suspends free will. He, for, for that brief moment, for that one decision... God takes free will away, and then immediately once that's done, once you become a Christian, free will resumes again. Why? Because, okay, so back to it, because he wanted some to be saved, 
And a Calvinist back here, because they believe in total depravity, would say, if God did not do that for us, if God did not save us, no one would get saved because you were dead in your sins and trespasses and you could not possibly have heard the Spirit of God. You could not possibly have responded to the Spirit of God. And if God had not done this, then no one would have been saved because no one could have responded to God. Uh, is there any scripture that supports the suspension of free will? Um, <clears throat> okay, so let me, let, me give you, let me give you one that would probably come up. So grab your Bibles real quick and go with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. It's an account of, uh, G, or, of Paul out on his ministry with Barnabas. They're sharing the gospel. Uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, let's start in verse 47. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 47. This is uh, Paul kind of summing up. He's getting to the end of a sermon that he's just preached. And uh, here's what it says, verse 47. This is what the Lord has commanded us, talking about Paul and Barnabas. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were, next word, appointed for eternal life, believed. And they would say, so there it is. It's right there. The ones that believed were the ones that were chosen. The ones that were appointed to life were the ones that believed, and the ones who weren't appointed to life didn't believe. Okay? So real quick, and then we'll keep going. Um, So, I mean, when you look at, like, Judas Iscariot, for example, you could say that he wasn't chosen. Right. He had no free will. Would you agree in his choice? Because it was part of God's plan in advance that he would betray Jesus. Say, ask that again a different way. <laughs> I, I don't know how I feel about Calvinism. I mean, I don't. Right. Know, I'm still trying to form sure something based on this conversation. But Judas was predestined to betray Jesus, so he was also predestined to lose salvation forever. I mean, he had no chance at salvation. So I'm glad you said it that way. So here's what I'm going to say back to you. I'm going to challenge you with that, okay? And rather than getting too far off, but I'm just going to challenge you back. If Judas was predestined, in other words, if God decided that Judas was going to betray Jesus, and that was a predestined decision by God, then you realize God just decided that Judas had to sin which would then make God the author of sin, and Judas could one day stand in front of God and say, God, it's not my fault I betrayed Jesus. Jesus, You predestined me, so the sin is on you, God, and not on me, because I didn't have a choice. And that's the scary part when you start, you know, if you start saying that everything that happens in this world is because God is sovereign and in control, then God becomes the author of sin. And it's a slippery slope. Okay? All right. That that passage from Acts that you quoted, um, it doesn't necessarily suspend free will because it talks about the uh, people who were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Those who were glad and honored the word were those who came to life. I think I think the the word in there that is that is the one that stands out is the word appointed. And that's the one that gets the hat hung on it in the conversation is these were appointed people to eternal life. 
Okay, so I, I, we're good. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. Uh, let's go back through this. I'm going to give you some passages to think about. No matter where you are on this topic, whether you're pro or, or, or not or struggling or trying to form it, I'd like to go back through. I want to give you some passages to wrestle through with this topic, okay, that I, I, think, will, I think bring a little bit of light. All right, so let's go back to the first one. All right, let's, we'll leave it there. All right, so total depravity. Okay, who remembered? What does total depravity mean? Dead in your sin. Unable to hear, unable to understand anything that comes from God. Here's my question, okay? Is that accurate? Is that truly accurate of the human condition? And I get it. I get that the passage, there is a passage that says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but you realize that's metaphorical. And you and I always get in trouble when we make doctrine out of metaphor. Okay? All God was saying is, the best I can help you understand how far away you were from God is to let you know how far a dead person is from the living. That's how far you were. And I get that. But was God really trying to say you couldn't hear God, you couldn't think about God, you couldn't even understand anything? Was that really what he was trying to convey with that passage? So let's go look at a couple of verses. And guys, get your fingers ready because we're going to go. Remember we said we're going to look at some passages. So get ready. Here we go. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 16. Okay, here's what it says. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who... Whoa, 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 whoa. How did they get salvation? They believed. So what came before salvation? What was the thing that caused salvation to come? Well, well, I thought they were dead. I thought they couldn't possibly consider God. And yet, isn't this passage saying that belief was the activator of salvation? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. How did righteousness come? Faith. How did dead men have faith? From first to last, just as written, the righteous will live by faith. And then here's verse 18, which I think is even more powerful. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all all the godless and wicked men. Okay? So God is deeply angry at godless and wicked men. Who, what did they do? Suppressed the truth. So here's what scripture just said. Godless and wicked men heard the truth, did not like the truth. And unlike a dead body that lays there, they actually responded to the truth they didn't like and began to push it away. I thought they were dead. No, no, no. They're wicked. And they are pushing away the truth. They are responding. They're responding poorly but they're responding to the call of God by turning it away. Dead men can't do that. And again, guys, I want to say you're always in trouble when you use a metaphor to build theology. It'll always get you in danger. Okay, let's go to another passage uh, real quick. Uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what it says. Yet to all who received him, to those, to who? To the ones who received him. 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Guys, think about this a second. Remember, Calvinists said, no, 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 no. God made you a Christian, and then you thought about receiving him. Didn't this verse just say the opposite? You believed and received, and then he made you a son of God. And that belief and receiving is the condition upon which sonship happens. Yeah. Also right there, verse 9, it talks about every man. Um, it says here, of course, I have a different version than you. Um, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Yeah. Every man. There you go. I'm, I'm with you. Now, what they would say, again, and the reason they would kick back on that particular verse, is they would say, well, the light shined on the dead ones. They just couldn't see it. Okay? So, um, no, I, I mean, I'm, that, that is what the response would be. Here's my problem, though, is John chapter 1, verse 12 just said, belief is what activates sonship. Not the other way around. Not sonship activates belief. Okay? All right. So, total depravity. Here's the thing I'm going to say to you guys. I think, here, here's the deal, good theology does two things. Good theology stacks up and is consistent in Scripture. In other words, you'll be able to go through and say, look, because I've got a good, solid theology, I have a minimum number of verses that I have a problem with if you've got good theology. But here's the other thing that good theology is going to do. It's going to make sense of the world around us. In other words, the, what's happening in the world will become clearer when we begin to see it through God's eyes, which is what theology is, seeing through God's eyes. So here's my question. If mankind is totally dead in sin and trespass, in other words, they cannot think about God, they cannot respond to God. If God was standing next to them and yelling, they couldn't even do it because they are dead and incapable of true spiritual thought, then explain this to me. Explain to me a Mormon. Because isn't a Mormon at the end of the day a guy who is in some way, it's a wrong way, trying to fulfill a spiritual hunger within his life. Explain to me every cult. Explain to me every false religion in the world. If people are spiritually dead and do not have a hunger for some sort of spiritual connection. Now, they're doing it wrongly, but doesn't every single false religion declare that there is a missing component spiritually in the hearts of men and women? It doesn't work for total depravity. Okay? All right. Second one, unconditional election. All right, who remembers what unconditional election was? Random choosing. In other words, God just chose some unconditionally to be the ones that were going to get saved. Unconditional choosing. Unconditional election. All right, let's go look at a couple of verses real quick. Okay, so here's the other part. So if, if there is unconditional election then there's going to be a group of people who were chosen to be saved. And then based on the number of people who are getting saved in this world, then there's a huge group of people that God did not choose. Does that make sense? I mean, right now within the United States, which is one of the more Christian countries in the world, the actual number of Christians is probably below 9%. You get to places like India and Christianity is below 2%. So in other words, God chose a very limited, very small group of people to be saved and apparently did not choose a huge group of people to ever know eternal life. Okay? Is that really the heart of God? So grab your Bibles. Second uh, Peter. If you're not real familiar, Second Peter is going to be almost at the back of your Bible. Second Peter chapter 3. This is Peter explaining why Jesus isn't coming back sooner. 
It's 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Here's what it says. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, the, 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 the Lord, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting, next word, anyone to perish. What did that just say the heart of God is regarding salvation? That He doesn't want anyone to perish. Which means if God was choosing people to salvation, according to Second Peter chapter 3, how many would He have chosen? If He was suspending free will and forcing people to be Christians, how many would He have suspended free will and forced? All of them. Because the Bible says God doesn't want anyone to perish. And if God is acting sovereignly in this regard, then all would be elected. How does the Great Commission play into that? Because if God predestined you, what would be the need for me to go and outreach? The answer to that is, and, and the question was, well, what, why would it be the Great Commission? Why would we go share the gospel? And the answer is, because you don't know who's going to believe. So you have to go tell him because you don't know who he chose. Okay. All right. Let me give you another verse. Uh, real quick, First uh, Timothy, it's going to be the left, First Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4. Okay, here's what it says. First Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4 says, talking about God, actually go to verse 3. This is good, verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior, you ready? Who wants all men to what? Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. If God wants all men to be saved and God is choosing who's going to be saved, how many would he have chosen? All. All. And yet we find incredibly small amounts of people who come. How do you answer that with unconditional election? You answer that with free will. Yeah. How do you explain um, Romans 9, like 11 through 15? Romans 9, 11 through 15. Okay, so we're going to table that, which is a great question. I love the question. And we'll get back to it. Okay? And you're, here's the thing I'm going to say to you. Don't let me not get back to it, even if we have to talk about it afterwards. Okay? Because it's a great question. And Romans 9 is probably the strongest Calvinistic chapter in Scripture. It probably is. Okay? All right. So, unconditional election... Um, I'll give you a couple more verses just in case you want to write them down. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. All passages that talk about God wanting uh, all men uh, to come to salvation. Here's the thing I'm going to toss out. Remember we said good theology is going to make good sense of the world. Stop and think about this. If, if election is unconditional, in other words, if God just chose people for no reason, it wasn't because they were tall, it wasn't because they were good looking, it wasn't because they were white, it wasn't because they were, you know, Americans. He just chose people unconditionally. If that were the case, if that were accurate, then the effect of the gospel, in other words, the people who were becoming Christians would have nothing to do with how much it was being preached or how little it was being preached in any particular country. Does that make sense? Because the people that were chosen would become Christians and the people who weren't chosen couldn't become Christians. So how much you preach the gospel would not make a difference. Does that make sense? Nod, yes, just to make you feel better. Okay, so 
if unconditional election was true and you went out and surveyed the world, you would expect that there would be an even sprinkling of every single people group, every single racial type, every single age group would be be even because God unconditionally elected. He just chose randomly for people to come to Jesus, right? Is that accurate? Is that accurate? And the truth is, far more white Americans come to Jesus than North Koreans. So God surely must love white, middle-class, Anglo Americans more than North Koreans because almost no North Koreans were chosen. And, and he, must, he must love black people less than Hispanic people because right now in South America there's huge revival going on and zillions, I mean, there's unbelievable growth in the church and in Africa it's hard to find pockets of revival. How do you do that with unconditional election? How do you do that with God randomly choosing people? And it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. But it does if there's free will. It does if certain groups and certain communities choose the gospel and receive it well, and others turn it away and refuse to listen. But if I don't get to choose, then there ought to be an even sprinkling of believers all through the world, all through the ages. Okay. Next one, limited atonement. What is limited atonement? Who remembers? Huh? He only died for the ones that would be saved because he's not going to waste his blood on the others because if he did, if he shed his blood for the others, then they would be saved by virtue of the fact that the blood had been paid for them. So he only died for those that would one day become Christians. Limited atonement. All right, grab your Bibles. First Timothy, let's go right back. It's the same passage we were just in. So first, first Timothy chapter 2. We're just going to go a little further. First Timothy chapter 2. Let's start in verse 4 again. Here's what it says. Who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for how many? All men. All men. How do you do that with limited atonement? If Jesus is giving himself a ransom for all men. Because here's the answer at the end of the day. That when we stand before God and if we've not accepted Jesus as our Savior, He can look at us and say, I died for you and you could have been in heaven. I paid the price for you. Died for all men. Yeah. And like in in Revelation it says, all will bow and acknowledge Christ on that day. That he is Lord. So I guess taking, if you look back, they all could have acknowledged him as Lord before they were dead. Yeah, the problem when in Revelation, when they finally acknowledge it, it's a day late, a day short. You know, you're on the wrong side of death at the point when you finally admit. Yeah. If that wasn't the case, then the rest of them would say, well, you know, we, we never had a choice. You made it for us, so we don't have to acknowledge you right. as Lord now. Which I think is an interesting argument that says, how can you hold me accountable for not choosing God if I didn't ever have the ability to choose God? It's like kicking a dog that didn't do anything. <laughs> because I knew you should have done something. Okay. 
All right, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Remember, we're talking about limited atonement. Did Jesus die for everybody, or did he die just for those who would become Christians? Hebrews chapter 2, again, toward the back of your Bible, uh, verse 9, here's what it says. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Ready? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Everyone. Guys, I, I, I'm going to suggest to you it's as easy as John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay? All right, so limited atonement. A um, couple more verses just in case. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 2. All right. Last one. Last one we're going to really talk about. Irresistible grace. What is irresistible grace? Who remembers it? What does irresistible grace say? You cannot resist. You have no choice. When God chooses you to be saved, you cannot resist being saved. You will get saved because it is irresistible. Matter of fact, the description would be you actually, God made you alive. He actually made you a child of God. And then you thought, I ought to be a Christian. But you only had that thought because you already were one. Okay? So irresistible uh, grace. Uh, Here we go. Matthew. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Here's what it says. This is Jesus. This is shortly before Jesus is going to die. And he is standing uh, on the Mount of Olives looking across to the outside of the city of Jerusalem. And this is what he says in that moment. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those sent to you. How often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Okay? So here's Jesus saying, look, for centuries I have longed, Israel, to gather you to myself, for you to behave like my people, to... Be right with... I've longed to have that happen. And then he says, But you were not willing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the grace of God was irresistible. And yet, isn't the whole story of Israel resisting grace? And resisting God? Still are. Still are. Remember when Paul is standing... And we'll make you turn there. But remember when Paul is standing in front of King Agrippa... And he's sharing the gospel. Remember, Paul's been arrested, and King Agrippa comes for a visit, and they say, King Agrippa, you're smart. You should decide this. And remember, Paul gives the gospel. And King Agrippa, do you remember what he says to Paul at the very end? You have almost persuaded me, Paul, to become a Christian. What was King Agrippa doing to the gospel right then? He was resisting. He was resisting the gospel. And as far as we know, he never made the choice. But he says, I'm almost there, Paul. I'm almost ready. But he's resisting the gospel. Okay? How can grace be irresistible? And here's the reality, guys. Haven't you talked to a hundred friends about Jesus? And haven't you seen them start to think about it and then go, no? Or haven't you seen the opposite? Haven't you seen a person who says, no, 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 for years? And then says, you know what? I think it makes sense now. 
But what did they do all those years? They resisted the gospel. They didn't magically wake up one day and go, I'm a Christian. They resisted, 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 resisted. Okay? All right, so here's the deal. Where are we at on time? Let's see, Pastor. We have approximately nine minutes. Okay, good. All right, so here's the million-dollar question. Why, why take time to even talk about this here? Here's why. You need to know that right now within Christianity, Calvinism is actually becoming incredibly popular. This is probably one of the fastest-growing doctrinal discussions within all Christianity. And if you have not been exposed to it and you're not talking to Christian friends who are wrestling through and doing this, you will. I'm just telling you right now, you will. This is the fastest-growing doctrinal discussion within Christianity right now. It just is. And it, is, it, is the, it, is the, it has more energy and more conversation going on, especially amongst young people right now in the church, the discussion of Calvinism. Here's my concerns, okay? Now, anybody, I'm not, I'm not throwing anyone in the bus. You realize this is a mainline discussion. Anyone know denominations which would tend to be Calvinistic denominations? Anybody know that? Okay, what would they be? Okay, so run back real quick. Presbyterian. Yeah, Presbyterians have long-standing been Calvinistic denominations. And here's the thing I want to say out loud. You get that they're good Christians and they love Jesus. No one's saying that. It's, it's just, where do you stand doctrinally? How do you view the world theologically, and how do you view salvation theologically, and how it happens, okay? So Presbyterians, long-time uh, uh, Calvinist, yeah. Reformed? Yeah, anything Reformed, and actually uh, Presbyterians would come out of what you call the Reformed movement. So anything that says Reformed, that's, that's just another way of saying it's a Calvinistic tradition that's going on there. Uh, Calvinism right now is growing in Baptist groups. Lots of Baptist groups are moving Calvinistic in the conversation right now. Oh, Romans 9. Okay, we'll get back to it in just a second. I promise. Okay? All right, so here's the last thing I want to say, and then, and then with whatever time I got, I'll, I'll try. We'll think about Romans 9. All right, here's why I think this discussion is worthwhile. If you believe this, if you head this direction, doctor, you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. It doesn't change a thing. And, and just because you believe you became a Christian before you made the choice, it doesn't change. You made a choice for Jesus. And I, I personally think you've got your timing backwards, but it doesn't matter. You've still made a choice for Jesus. And you're, you're going to heaven and you love God. And the truth is, many, most Calvinists are good Bible scholars. This is the interesting part. Most Calvinists are good Bible students. So you can't fault them on that, uh, on the deal. Here's my deep concern with the doctrine. If I believe that people are going to get saved no matter what, because God chose them to be saved, and they will become Christians no matter what, what implications does that have for missions? Yeah, why should I give up my American lifestyle, why should I surrender to go if they're going to become Christians whether I go or not? If my friend is going to become a Christian, why should I risk humiliation with my friend if he's going to become a Christian whether I talk to him or not? Yeah. Is it uh, common that Calvinists tend to do less mission work than... Here's what happens usually, and this is a very broad statement, and it's not, a, it's not necessarily a fair statement, okay? But... It is, a, it is a reflective statement of what is most the time true. Does that make sense? And that is this. 
almost every Calvinistic movement struggles to keep evangelism alive after the first generation of Calvinists. In other words, usually the first generation of Calvinists tend to be very good with the gospel and tend to share it very fervently. It's their children that begin to say, why are we doing this? Uh, It doesn't make a difference. And the second generation tends to lose all evangelistic fervor. Not oh, but tends to. It's a generally true principle. And that's why it's that's why it's a worthy conversation, guys, because at the end of the day, I'm going to suggest the number one purpose for you and I being on this earth is to tell people who don't know Jesus about our Jesus. Yeah. Just one really quick point. You know yeah. how you were saying earlier, um, I think it was the woman in the front row was saying, what's the point of um, evangelizing anyone then? Because, you know, we don't know who's going to be right. saved. That's what I would say about missions, you know, that I would go out of obedience because I don't know who's going to be saved and that it's not up to me right. who's going to end up being saved from that. I'm just, I'm going out of obedience. Right. And, and here's what you need to, and, and that's a, most, and again, talking to general, most first generation Calvinists would say that. They'd say, I don't know who's going to get saved out of obedience because God told me to go. I'm going to go share the gospel. And first-generation Calvinists usually are very good with the gospel. It's their children that seem to struggle. And again, that's, that's, that's why it's not fair, because it's a general observation. It's not, their children, you, know, may, you may be able to show me a second-generation Calvinist movement that kept the gospel going. And it's, it's a generalization. Yep? I think one of my main concerns with this uh, way of thinking is, for the younger generation, wouldn't it almost be an excuse to keep living the lifestyle that they're living because, hey, if God chose me to get saved, then maybe he chose me when I'm 45, so I might as well keep living how I'm living now and in enjoying life. You know what? It, it really usually doesn't take that form, and that's a good question, but it usually doesn't take that form. The truth is uh, Calvinists tend to be very, very high on the holiness of God. It's the reason they want God to be in charge of salvation at such a high level is because they have a very, 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 very high view of God and His holiness and His power. And most Calvinists tend to live a pretty holy lifestyle. They, they really do. Um, I can see where you might think they would go, but they don't. Most Calvinists tend to be pretty conservative in lifestyle for the most part. They really do. One last thing, yep. and I'm just curious. What's the end result for all the non-believers then? Because this is kind of new to me too. If... if Ninety percent of the population is not saved by choice. They must have a different view on hellfire or something. Or like no, what they would say to those people that don't that they, aren't chosen. So now you're at Romans nine, which our friend asked about. Uh, they would say that some people are created for salvation and some people are created as vessels of destruction. That actually, people people who miss God and then have eternal punishment. That very act of that shows the righteousness of God because they're receiving the penalty for their sin. And so it shows it shows the righteousness of God in contrast to the love of God for those who were saved. Uh, Romans 9 in the whole chapter. So how much time do I have? Okay, now we've got two minutes. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the cheap answer and then you're going to come to me afterwards and we're going to do the better answer. Okay, uh, on the deal. Here's what I'm going to suggest on Romans chapter 9 real quickly because, and here's why the rest of us need to hear this. Romans 9, if you want to go get, you know, your head burned a little bit, 
Go read Romans 9, because Romans 9 talks about God created some for destruction, He created some for glory, and it seems to go right into this whole Calvinist conversation. Here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest that when you pop Romans 9 out of the book of Romans, you do it in justice. And that you, if you want to get a thorough and a good understanding of Romans chapter 9, have to take it into the whole conversation of the book of Romans. So here's the thing I'm going to give you. The first two chapters of the book of Romans, God is getting everybody unsaved. Okay? If you read the first two chapters of the book of Romans, he goes, look, if you're a heathen person and you're out there worshiping idols, you're unsaved. If you're a good person and do good moral things, you still aren't good enough to go to heaven. If you're a highly religious person and do all the religious things but do not have Jesus, you're still unsaved. And Romans spends the first two chapters, Romans 1 and 2, getting everybody unsaved. Romans then spends chapter 3 through 6 getting everybody into heaven. Okay? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapters 3 through 6 tell you how to get to heaven. And why Jesus is sufficient to do that. So here's the thing I'm going to toss out. In Romans, when did you become a Christian? Chapter 6. Chapter 6, you became a Christian. By the time you get to chapter 8, anybody know the famous verse in Romans chapter 8? For God works all things. Okay, let's go real quick. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, here's what it says. And you guys know this, is we quote it all the time to people that are really sad and then they hit us. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, here's what it says. And we know that all things God works for the good for those who, what? So these people are already what? They're already Christians. See, they got saved in chapter 6. Romans 8 is dealing with people after salvation. We know that all things work together for good of those who love him, been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew. Look at that word again. He predestined. Oh my goodness. Look at that word again. But here's going to be the million dollar answer. Did he predestine them to be saved? What does the Bible say? For those he foreknew, he predestined to what? What's the next phrase? Be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And my predestination was not predestined to become a Christian. My predestination was to be like Jesus. Which simply means this. God is working every circumstance. He's working every problem. He's working every good thing. He's working every bad thing to make me look like what? Because God has decided the destination for every Christian is look like Jesus. And even if you and I fight that, fight that, fight that, fight that with free will all of our lives, guess what heaven does? Cleans up the rest of the mess, right? We get to heaven and God makes us perfect and we will look just like Jesus. So you better believe you and I are predestined to look like Jesus. Does it make sense? But predestination is something for believers, not what got me to be a believer. Chapter 7 through 8 is sanctification which is just a bible term for saying growing up in jesus okay so by the time i get to chapter nine and now we start talking about vessels for destruction and vessels for honor and here's what i believe chapter nine is talking about chapter nine is a conversation with the children of israel to say this hey 
If God wants to use you and he wants to send you to Egypt so that you struggle, or if God wants to put you so that you are blessed and every other country is coming to you to ask you why you're blessed so much, i.e. King Solomon and and, and uh, the Queen Sheba coming to see. If God wants to use you in your life different ways, who are you to complain about that? Because God has the right with every Christian to put you into whatever circumstance He deems fit for you. Vessels for destruction, vessels for honor. If God says to Daniel, Daniel, the lions get to eat you this time. Daniel, who are you to complain? Don't you belong to Daniel, or to God, Daniel? If God chooses to spare you, then God chooses to spare you. Vessels for honor, vessels for destruction. Chapter 9, the people in the chapter are already Christians. And God is saying, God has the right to do whatever he needs to do in your Christian life. Okay, That's the cheap version. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll be done. Those that want to can come up and talk with me afterwards and uh, tell me how bad I am. Uh, save your emails. Um, but you can you, no, you can write me emails. It's okay. We'll, we'll have an ongoing You can always challenge things scripturally. That's okay. It's fine to disagree. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for a chance to kind of dig in. God, I get it. I get that there are really, really good Christians on both sides of this topic. And good Christians have disagreed on this discussion for hundreds of years. And God, the reality is... As long as we obey you and serve you and, and share the gospel, then it, it, it's not going to matter a whole bunch on this side of heaven. God, would you help those of us tonight that maybe struggled a little bit, that maybe said, ouch, that's not what I've heard, that's not what I believe, that that would, instead of causing us to be angry or frustrated, would simply motivate us to go back and study more deeply in Scripture to prepare uh, what we believe that much more thoroughly for the conversation. God, thanks for these people tonight. Thanks for a chance to dig into your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, guys, thank you. It's been fun.